It's Friday, July 2nd. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a podcast from Pen America. On today's edition, Tracking Hate. With a rise in racially motivated hate crimes, we talk to a New York State senator about how to fight back. Then, tough questions. Our own Suzanne Nossel wades through the week in free speech. How is Chinese government censorship impacting free expression globally? How are hate crimes and hate speech interrelated? And what does the reversal on the 10 your decision for Nicole Hannah-Jones mean for academic freedom. I'm Stephen Fee. All that coming up on The Pen Pod. With a rise in anti-Asian hate crimes, political leaders at the local and national level are beginning to take serious action. Here in New York, uh, State Senator Brad Hoylman has passed legislation that would change how hate crime data is collected. As an organization devoted to dispelling hatreds, we at PEN America and our New York City Literary Action Coalition are committed to seeing these problems addressed through community action, dialogue, and systemic change. Here to chat with us now, New York State Senator Brad Hoylman. Welcome to the Pen Pod. Thanks, Stephen. Good to be here. A pleasure. Um, so, so let's dive right in. You know, New York and, and especially New York City, often seen as a haven for communities of all backgrounds. But you know, we've seen this national increase of anti-Asian hate crimes, other hate crimes affecting us here as well. I'm wondering if you can paint a picture a bit about how anti-Asian hate is, is manifesting here in New York. Well, I don't think we should forget uh, that this country has had a long history of discrimination. Um, against um, Asian Americans and AAPI people. Um, uh, but no doubt, Stephen, that the toxicity from our previous uh, president has helped amplify this racism and uh, put AAPI people in so many dangerous situations over the last year. Even here in New York City, as, as you say, our own Asian American community has been harassed, uh, discriminated against, and and assaulted. Uh, in fact, in 2020, the New York City Commission on Human Rights reported uh, an alarming 200 incidents of anti-Asian American discrimination in the workplace, in wow. housing searches, in businesses, and uh, in street incidents, 30% more than what happened back in 2019. I mean, that's that's scary. And I think that it's, you know, obviously we're seeing in the headlines, as you say, people who are Asian, Asian, Asian American and Pacific Islander here in New York are, are feeling the burn of that. So what is this legislation meant to do? What is it meant to address? Well, the legislation that that I've passed, uh, which is called the Hate Crimes Analysis and Review Act, uh, along with uh, Assembly Member Karinas Reyes, would expand the data that's collected and reported regarding hate crimes, both in terms of the victims and the perpetrators. Uh, the, the law already requires the state to collect and report data on hate crimes. However, there isn't any requirement to collect crucial demographic data. So without this information, we're really left in the dark about who's being targeted by hate crimes and who's committing and being arrested for hate crimes. So our new bill, which was passed by both houses, would fix this and, and make sure that the state collects the, the data uh, on both victims and perpetrators um, and um, provide, I think, important information for policymakers to take steps moving forward. 
And look, you know, we're, we're a free expression group. We, we believe in data and that good data helps us make good decisions. You know, but at the same time, I'm sure you know, there's concern about, you know, increased policing and, and criminalization, especially in communities of people of color. How has that been part of your consideration in crafting this bill? And, and how do you manage that concern when you're trying to put legislation like this together? That's exactly right. And we're going through that nationwide reckoning uh, on racial justice uh, with police reform at the center here, here in New York and New York City in particular. Um, in fact, this bill originated with me from the original uh, very idea that increasing criminal penalties, which is what happens when a crime is charged as a hate crime, often disproportionately impacts communities of color. So I had passed back in um, 2019 legislation called the Gender Expression Non-Discrimination Act, or GENDA, which added protections for transgender and gender non-conforming people to New York's anti-discrimination and hate crimes laws. But not all of the transgender and gender non-conforming advocates we work with were completely comfortable with expanding hate crimes law, even though it was going to protect their community, because they were concerned with how that law I think correctly, would be enforced. So I've promised uh, that I'd write and introduce legislation to help policymakers better understand who's being arrested, charged with, and prosecuted for committing hate crimes. So we're seeing that more policing doesn't always result in safer communities and that there are powerful alternatives to over-policing and the mass incarceration that we've seen have a disproportionate impact on people of color for generations. So when writing this bill, we wanted to find a way to understand, Stephen, uh, and address the problem without relying on increased policing. So the goal is to be able to collect the data necessary to define the problem, which is going to give us more uh, tools (laughs) to understand and target state resources where they're needed. Yeah, well, I want to go back to one thing you mentioned before about rhetoric, um, because you mentioned the sort of toxic environment that was, you know, really coming from Washington during the Trump administration that was, you know, perhaps fueling uh, such so many of these these sort of racist sentiments against Asian and Asian American uh, people in this city and in this country. Uh, you know, and again, we're a free expression group. You know, we, 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 we believe in the First Amendment. At the same time, we believe that, you know, political leaders need to be held to a high standard and that, you know, words matter, words count and words have have actions. But at the same time, you know, we do get criticized, right? We get criticized by folks who say, well, you know what, it's, it's, it's just words. I wonder where you, where you respond to that debate. Well, it's not just words. Um, you know, words have often, um, very deep meanings and side effects. Um, and they suggest, you know, a trend line, uh, particularly, you know, in venues like social media that can be very disturbing and cause um, the manifest of you know physical violence in some instances. So if it were as simple as you know sticks and stones can 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 break my my bones scenario, uh, I I'm I'm okay with that. But when you actually have groups targeted for physical violence, whether it be on the subway or in public squares, like near, you know, one police plaza, uh, you have to, you know, take a step back and try to understand what the impact of these words are, particularly when they emanate from people like Donald Trump or Rudolph Giuliani 
at the highest levels of government and uh, peel back the, the, the onion to, to understand how these root causes um, are, are fomented and um, what we can do uh, as policymakers to try to address them. So just briefly back to the bill, you know, if there's if there's a thing that you want um, the community to know about the importance of this bill, the Asian American, uh, Asian Pacific Islander community, even just the broader, you know, sort of New Yorker city community, um, what, what would you want them to know about it? That this legislation will peel those layers of the onion back and try to understand who is being targeted and who is perpetrating um, violence against certain segments of our communities, uh, um, communities of color, um, LGBTQ, uh, women, immigrants. Uh, there, there's been a lot of hatred uh, um, and, and social media and, and other platforms have amplified it. It's time that we take a really sober look at uh, what we're doing in our schools and other settings um, that government has responsibility for to correct that trend. Yeah. Well, and finally, we are a literary organization. So I need to ask what you're reading right now that's either exciting to you or inspiring to you. Well, certainly uh, I'm in the middle of, of Rodham, the the novel by yes. Curtis Sittenfeld, which is so fun and interesting. Uh, as someone who just undertook a municipal race and finished last Tuesday, uh, I really, you know, identify with political characters in fiction, uh, of course. And um, it's a fun read. Uh, it's one of those what ifs. Uh, that uh, I find compelling as someone who enjoys fiction. Well, we'll be sure to put a link uh, on our website when we publish our interview with State Senator Brad Hoylman, who's joined us now on the Pen Pod. Um, Senator Hoylman, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. And now for Tough Questions, where we go through the trickiest questions about free speech from the past week with our own CEO, Suzanne Nossel. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Stephen. So, Suzanne, we're slightly delayed in our recording time because you were testifying before the U.S. International Trade Commission on Chinese government censorship. And, and this is a topic we've talked about uh, on this podcast, particularly about Beijing's stranglehold on free expression and its impact on the film industry. Today, you also talked about its impact on journalists, on booksellers, on writers. Uh, is this hearing proof that policymakers are finally paying attention to the threat China's regime of censorship poses for free speech, not only in China, but globally. I hope so. I mean, this is something that we have been focused on as an organization for a long time. It was interesting to put together this testimony and realize just how many studies we have done on various aspects of this, including the implications of Chinese censorship for uh, U.S. authors when their works are translated into Mandarin for publication on the mainland. We've looked at constraints on 
foreign journalists covering uh, China from inside the mainland. You know, that's a problem that's gotten far worse uh, since we wrote about it. Uh, we just released our report on digital sovereignty, which is a major aspect of this. We have our report on uh, Hollywood, made in Hollywood, censored in Beijing, uh, and, and a report on, on Chinese censorship of social media. So we have looked at many different angles of this problem over many years. And this is the first time that a U.S. government entity has really uh, reached out to us to probe into this issue. And so I think it does reflect a kind of awakening to the implications of Chinese censorship, not just inside the mainland, not even just uh, in Hong Kong, where obviously we've talked a lot about how uh, things are becoming uh, far worse. We saw the arrests, you know, not just the shutdown of Apple Daily, but the arrests of two of its writers uh, just over the last week. But, uh, you know, this, this problem and its reverberations are global. You know, we see decisions being made, uh, you know, in Hollywood that are, uh, you know, in a sense dictated by Chinese censorship and taboos, uh, decisions that are being made in Silicon Valley board meetings, uh, the same thing. And so I think coming to grips with the ramifications of having a global power of China's size and scale and influence that has uh, such a tight regime of information uh, and opinion control that it sees as existential. Uh, you know, that is something that I, I feel like the, the West has yet to really fully take on board. And uh, it seemed like the, the discussion today was sort of the beginning of it, perhaps. Well, hopefully. Um, well, let's move on to the U.S. After a, a lot of back and forth, trustees at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill this week voted to give tenure to writer and journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones, of course, the curator of the 1619 Project. This was uh, after refusing initially to consider her proposed tenure. Is this a win for academic freedom? You know, I think uh, it really is. You know, this case, look, the tenure process is discretionary and there are various levels of review and you know we take the position you know those decisions should be arrived at in a reasoned way uh and you know that we don't we don't expect boards to necessarily uh defer in every instance to for example the recommendation of an academic department but in this case, it was pretty clear that those you know, most closely involved with what Hannah Jones is going to be doing at UNC were firmly in favor of her receiving an appointment with tenure. Her predecessors in this night uh, chair at the university had uh, been granted tenure, even though you know, they, like her, were sort of working journalists, uh, not PhD holders. And you know, what came into it was some of the debate over the 1619 project. And, you know, I think that's a, a valid debate. And there are serious historians who have offered contrary perspectives, who called into question some of what she uh, in, in, and, and the project have put forward, some of its analysis. And I think that, uh, you know, is absolutely legitimate topic for debate. But the fact that, uh, you know, it's controversial or there are alternative perspectives out, out there or, you know, even that some people may think it's flat out wrong, uh, you know, cannot be grounds for denying tenure when the rest of the record would support it. You know, that to me 
veers into the territory of a kind of ideological discrimination, uh, you know, where someone is uh, being denied the opportunity for a, uh, you know, a, a certain stature on ideological grounds. And that's something we reject, whether the ideology in question is progressive or liberal or conservative. And so, you know, I think what was also striking in this case, you know, was just the extent of the outcry among scholars, including some scholars who really disagree with Hannah Jones substantively, uh, who nonetheless felt for this, uh, you know, kind of position with the precedent as it was for it to be tenured, that the denial uh, came off as politically motivated, as an effort perhaps to appease a donor, and as, uh, you know, a step contrary to the precepts of academic freedom. And, you know, the outcry was such that I, I was quite sure this week that they were going to reverse themselves. And, you know, I think that sends an important message uh, to other boards about, uh, you know, being scrupulous when it comes to, uh, you know, not applying a, an ideological lens to uh, their review of these appointments. So finally, Suzanne, from from North Carolina to New York, you know, we just heard from New York State Senator Brad Hoyleman about his efforts to better track hate crimes uh, here in New York and New York State, um, in particular with the rise of uh, hate crimes against Asian, Asian American and Pacific Islander people. Um, and he talked a bit about how the divisive rhetoric of the last four years perhaps is a conflating fact or a complicating factor here that helped really fuel a spike in race motivated attacks. You know, how much do you think we can attribute physical violence to things like hate speech? And how do you how do you balance between the need for free speech and to protect it with the need to protect people's lives? Yeah, sure. Look, I think this is a good bill because what it does is focus in on tracking and reporting of hate speech incidents, which which are notoriously underreported. And so trying to bridge those gaps and allow us to build a more comprehensive picture of what is actually going on when it comes to uh, racially motivated attacks, you know, allows us to better understand, you know, what you raise, which is the nexus between hate speech and hate crimes. And, you know, one of the things I argue and dare to speak defending free speech for all is that free speech defenders need to fight against hate crimes, you know, and why is that? I mean, even if you didn't believe that fighting against hate crimes are just the right thing to do uh, on principle and as a moral matter, I think it's also instrumental for the protection of free, free speech and that I, if people believe that hate crimes are, uh, you know, running amok uh, and escalating and worsening, there is an impulse to crack down on speech. And, you know, that to me is not the right solution, although there is a relationship between hate speech uh, and hate crimes. There are, you know, there's evidence that I, I talk about in the book of, uh, of correlations between spikes in hate speech and spikes in hate crimes. Uh, and yet what, what there's no evidence of is the idea that by curbing or curtailing hate speech, by punishing or banning it, uh, you lessen uh, the, the propensity toward hate crimes. I don't think that hate speech is a cause of hate crimes. I think both hate speech and hate crimes, you know, reflect prevailing attitudes and, and biases uh, and, and bigoted impulses. So they may surge in tandem uh, and, and correlate, but that doesn't imply that uh, letting the, you know, allowing hate speech fosters hate crimes or, or, you know, even more so that curbing hate speech uh, legally 
uh, is, is a remedy uh, for an escalation in hate crime. So I think this is a very positive step uh, that, that puts more attention and scrutiny on this problem uh, in a constructive way. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, Pen America CEO Suzanne Nossel, her book, as she mentioned, Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All, is out in paperback next week. Thanks a lot, Suzanne. Thanks so much, Stephen. And that's our episode for Friday, July 2nd. A programming note, your PenPod team is taking next week off, but we'll be back the week after next with brand new episodes. You can listen to all our shows at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is the PenPod. See you soon. <laughs>